It's Hayward pulling it down, getting around Zubat at midcourt, launches the shot. Oh, and almost went in. Almost went in, and Duke is the king of the dance. It's time for the Shooter Shoot Basketball Podcast with your favorite Canadian, Kenneth Cotter. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to the Shooter Shoot Basketball Podcast, episode 50. Today is a big episode, our 50th, and I'm incredibly excited and honored to welcome my guest here today. He's a former scout for the Phoenix Suns and a former ESPN journalist, and that's Antonio Williams. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. I appreciate you having me on. I'm looking forward to having this conversation. Lots of things have been going on in the basketball world, so... Again, looking forward to it, and thank you again for sharing the platform. I appreciate it. Definitely. So how have you been dealing with quarantining so far? You know, it's been, uh, it's been a challenge in, in a lot of ways, but it's also been uh, great in a lot of ways as well because one of the things that we, all, we, we rarely get the opportunity where the world actually slows down and gives you a chance to adjust and improve most of the time we're trying to adjust and improve on the fly while the world continues to move. So, you know, this time is, has given me an opportunity to really uh, take advantage of having time with my family. Uh, being in this world, there's a sacrifice that's made. And oftentimes you're asking your family to make that sacrifice and, and uh, with respect to your time and your attention, because living in this world is, is very, it's great, but it, it can be also very stressful as well because we've managed to, with all of the media outlets that we have, we really live 24-hour news cycles with respect to sports. So things are happening all the time. So it means that when you're in this world, you're on all the time and you have to be accessible all the time. So, you know, having that opportunity to really reflect and be with your family and reconnect with the people that matter the most, that's been great. That's been great. Yeah, I, I was able to work from home for a number of months there, and, and it was incredible being able to spend some extra time with family and yeah. uh, just getting to see them for sure. And, I mean, you're right about the news cycle. I mean, even hours before we're recording here, like there was breaking news in the NBA. We're going <laughs> right. right. to get to that in a minute. But, <laughs> but before we get into that, you know, I wanted I wanted to hear from you a bit about your career. You know, obviously, as I pointed out in the intro, you're a former scout. You've worked at ESPN. You know, let's talk about your journey. How did you get started in sports? You know, it, it was funny. I have to thank my mom for that because she always talked to me about working in, in something that, that I'm passionate about and, and making sure that if you can take something that you're really passionate about and then find a way to, for lack of a better term, monetize that, then you're on to something there. So um, I always, I, I thought that I wanted to work and first I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Then I thought I wanted to work in investment banking. And uh, I actually shadowed a group that I was going to work with. I shadowed them for about a week. And a couple of days in, I figured out, you know what? Maybe this isn't for me. And, um, and while I was doing that, even though um, I was doing that and pursuing that economics path, 
um, all of my internships were in sports or entertainment. And so even though I was trying to chase the money per se, I was also, when I, when I was uh, doing my internships and really gathering my experience and trading dollars for experience during internship times, I was always in that sports or entertainment lane. And that's how ultimately I decided that this was the path for me. And, um, you know, and, and through that, there was a lot of cold calling people, um, emailing people, trying to figure out email addresses, right? And just sending cold emails as well, as well. And when I got to those few yeses, there were probably hundreds, if not thousands of no's. So uh, being persistent and, and walking that line of being persistent, but also too not being a nuisance. And that's a hard line because Definitely. that's subjective, right? Because it, it depends on the person that's on the receiving end of your correspondence, right? Yeah. And, you know, because if you contact someone twice in two months, they may look at you and say, hey, this person is being persistent and they're very interested. But again, I'm using that twice in two months because that's not a lot of correspondence, but yeah. somebody can perceive that as this person is always bothering me, right? Yeah. And, and, and it's really not, but it, it's, it could just be perceived that way. And the people that perceived it that way, they, you know, maybe some of them later on when we crossed paths became contacts and, and, and became part of my network. And some of them, they weren't, but I just didn't worry about that and um, continue to stay positive, continue to persist. And then I was fortunate enough to get a, my first job out of college after I finished playing at Brandeis University, I, I uh, worked in the NBA league office. I was a point guard there. Then I worked in the NBA league office in WNBA and a little bit of time of going in NBA basketball ops, but mostly WNBA basketball ops. Um, so doing that and learning how the league operates and learning about scheduling and all of those different things and fines, fines, suspensions, processing free agent trades. Um, I'm sorry, contracts, processing trades, processing when players are put on waivers, et cetera. So you're really learning evaluation of referees, all of those things that are at, at you're looking at the league from an operational standpoint at a bird's eye view. And um, with the idea that I wanted to, this jersey over, over my shoulder, I wanted to become GM of the Lakers and take over the world, right? <laughs> so I wanted to do that. And then uh, I was fortunate enough to get other experiences. I, my school's in Boston. I went back to Boston and worked in baseball operations and scouting for the Boston Red Sox. Won a World Series there in 04. Um, so great experience there. Still with the idea of wanting to go be a, a, a GM, right? Um, then went to ESPN and worked in scouting there and as a, a writer, scouter, a, a scout, analyst, et cetera, um, which was a great run. Then went to Nike and worked in college basketball sports marketing. There was scouting involved there. There were deals that I was negotiating with college basketball teams, et cetera. Uh, then uh, went and actually ran a basketball division, started and ran a basketball division at a major financial management company. Uh, oh. Did that. And then I went to the Suns. Um, <laughs> so all of that experience made me a better scout because, as, as you can probably imagine, when we're scouting, especially when you're on a team that is – building through the draft, there are lots of lottery picks that are involved. So not only are you scouting from a talent perspective, you also be able to have to ascertain if from a uh, personality or a character standpoint, are these players that fit within your program and the pillars that you are, are sort of championing and, 
and starting as the, the foundation for your program. So relying on those relationships that I gained when I was at Nike, when I was at ESPN, scouting on the high school side, et cetera, uh, were really kind of pillars for my scouting as well and foundations for my scouting is in addition to being able to evaluate if player X can play or not. So that's kind of my background. Tried to give you the Cliff Notes version as best as I could. And that's how I got to, you know, now jumping back into the media, back into wearing a familiar hat when I was at ESPN and using some of those experiences as the foundation for some of my views and and, uh, perspectives as we look at these sports happenings that we're talking about now. Yeah, that that's amazing. I mean, I love how you're talking about all the experiences that you went through and how it led to the career that you ended up in. I was a lot like you in university where I had no idea what exactly it was that I wanted to do. I switched majors yeah. a number of times, ultimately landed a job at the end of it. But the podcast that I have, obviously, it's given me an outlet because I too just love the idea of sports and and it's just incredible that we're able to have a platform like this in order to do so. For sure. But I uh, absolutely. So obviously, you had said you know you you switched over to the baseball side at some point. What was that a lot more of a challenge for you? Because it sounds like you had a lot more of a basketball background. Was it tough being on the baseball side of things? Well, well, I played baseball as a kid and and all of those, and so I was. It was always a game that I was interested in, and um, and was when the opportunity presented itself to not only work for because it's one thing. It's very very difficult to work for a team, a a professional team to begin with, whether that's NHL, whether that's NBA, whether that's NFL, whether that's MLB or not. And now we have MLS, right? It's then it presents an even more of a challenge to work on the operation side of it, meaning you're responsible for talent evaluation and selecting of players and things of that nature. That's an added level of difficulty. Then that third level of difficulty is, this is kind of like winning the lottery when you, work for a team, work on the operations side, and you're fortunate enough to work for an iconic team in that respective league. And that's what the Boston Red Sox represent in Major League Baseball, right? So when that opportunity was was presented to me, I had to walk through the door, yeah. right? I had to. And so um, it was relying on some of the things that I learned already as a player and, and being interested in the game uh, to begin with. And then some of the other things where baseball, because it's an individual sort of matchup with a pitcher and a hitter wrapped in a team sport, you can quantify a lot of things, which leads to a lot of the analytics that we're seeing and all bleeding into all of the other sports. That's kind of fostered by baseball because of that individual pitcher-hitter matchup and the fact that the the um, dimensions of the ballparks are not uniform. All the, All the different ballparks have different dimensions. Right. You have right hand hitters versus left right hand hitters versus left hand hitters, right hand pitchers versus right hand pitchers, uh, left hand pitchers. Mm -hmm. Right. So day night day games versus night games. So you have all of these things that you can quantify. So Mm -hmm. it leads to a lot of analytics and leaning, uh, leaning on the numbers a lot in baseball. And again, that's bled into different sports now. Right. And, And you're seeing in. Um, in football, you're seeing in, in basketball as well, where a lot of the, the uh, decision makers are numbers people. And, and that sort of comes from baseball. So having a base in that and then also too, um, my, my education being uh, given the fact that I was chasing that economics career, 
all of those things, being able to speak that language was something that I relied on when I worked in baseball and went to other areas in sports. So um, there were some things that were different, but there were also some things that were the same. And, and, and I can say in baseball, being at the Red Sox, because this is a team that's embedded in the social fabric of New England here in the States, but it's also embedded in the social fabric of Major League Baseball. This is a team that has a, a marketing base as well, a, a robust marketing base. And that kind of that experience really helped me when I was at Nike because I'm evaluating players helping our pro group when we're deciding who we're going to sign and not only looking at them from a talent standpoint, but looking at them from a marketing standpoint as well, right? Is this a player that has a compelling story that we can leverage to kind of evangelize about? Um, So having that experience really helped me. And um, so it's definitely parallel, certainly differences, but some parallels that you can draw from as well. That's amazing that you're you're able to to draw the comparisons between them and ultimately taking the lessons that you learned from baseball and being Appreciate able to translate it, it into your other into your other jobs. Um, before we get into the NBA side of things, though, I do have to ask: given that you were a scout, uh, yeah. was there any notable players that you that you missed on, or any notable players that you felt like you you got right? Um, sure, a- a- as a scout, because this is a subjective business, right? And and one of the things about it, A, it's a subjective business. And then B, one of the things about scouting as well is more times than not, and, and you know you know the NBA very well. Yeah. The fact of the matter is forget salaries. We're talking about actually transcendent players, meaning just having this player on your franchise automatically transforms the fortunes of, of your franchise, right? From good to bad or from mediocre to great, et cetera. There are really only about five players that are really like that yeah. in the NBA, right? They're, you know, not paid like that. I mean, that are actually have that type of impact on the floor. There's maybe four or five guys that are really like that. The mm-hmm. vast majority of players, and I'm getting to the scouting part, the vast majority of players, their situation, meaning who's the, the coach, what system are you running, who are the teammates, their, their situations are just as important as their talent, right? Mm-hmm. And, and oftentimes players that fall in the correct situations are able to sort of graduate and skill up. And players that may not go into the best situation for their respective talents or their dispositions, sometimes those are the players that may have a more challenging path. So mm-hmm. when you're scouting, you have to take those things into account as well. There's so many other things that you have to think about that, that you, when you're evaluating. So it lends itself to being very subjective. It lends itself to you being right about a lot of guys. And it lends itself to you missing on some guys as well. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, some of the guys that I could say offhand that I probably missed on, um, let me think about a guy. I want to think about a really good player that I missed on. Um, on Montrez Harrell. Yeah, I missed on him um, because I I thought that he was an NBA player, but I thought that he was an energy guy and he is an energy guy, but he's graduated to more than that. You know, being with Lou Williams, being part, he and Lou Williams are the only two guys in NBA history to come off the bench and average more than 18 points a game off the bench. Right. So the only tandem 
let me say they're the only tandem in NBA history to average more than 18 points a game off the bench in a season. Let me say it. Mm-hmm. Make sure I say it correctly. So I missed on his scoring ability. That's because I didn't quantify. I, you're, you're not able to quantify if a guy's going to improve or how much a guy's going to improve, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so I missed on him um, in terms of the significance of his impact. Um, a, a guy that I was probably right about is Fred Van Vliet. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah, I was right. I was spot on with him. Um, and and uh, because when I was at Nike, he was at Wichita State, and I was living in Chicago at the time. And I spent a lot. They were at they were Nike at that particular time, and I spent a lot of time with their team evaluating Fred, all of those things. So I knew what he was made of. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so he was a guy that that I was probably right about. Um, uh, and, and let's see if there's another guy that I was wrong about. I, I um, do love what you said though about about the situations and everything because I think for people who haven't had a position like you have you know it's easy for us to be like couch gms right like oh well how could you miss on that guy when in reality we're not taking into account as you said the coaching situations the systems that you're running and so it is easy for us to sit there and say well how can you miss on a guy like that how could you miss on montrez harrell and you know it, it happens all the time ultimately just you know whether it's human error or whether it's just, you know, you don't see something that they ultimately develop. I mean, that's just, it's amazing to hear. No, it's, it's absolutely true. And I think where where it's changed my scouting is because now with like, so you'll see guys that are, and you see this on the women's side as well. Um, And I'm a big fan of the WNBA as well. So, um, um, so you see this a lot uh, and it's sort of altered my scouting in this regard. I used to ask and always try to ascertain how hard a player works and, and um, when they're in college. And I've actually stopped asking that question because, and the reason why I say you see this in the WNBA and the NBA, when and I would say 2010, 2011, somewhere around there, the NCAA actually allowed for college basketball programs to have be on campus for the summer as a team and give them a couple of hours a week on the floor training, right? Where they're actually as a team. So they have their individuals and they get together and they have their court time as a team, a couple of hours a week during the summer. Mm -hmm. So what you're seeing is you see players that are three-year players and they're, they're, they're getting their degrees and they're leaving early because they're graduating in three years because they're on campus all the time. Yeah. And, with all of these, um, um, how do I say this? These team activities, you, the question isn't, is, does a player, for me, does a player work hard or not? Because there are so many team activities that are required that it doesn't matter if they work hard or not. They're going to have to be there, right? Yeah. The question is, how much do they love the game? Mm-hmm. Because are they here because it's compulsory? Or are they here because they want to be here? Because if they really love the game, then they're going to put in that extra time. Yeah, they, they don't treat the open gym time as optional. They, they treat it as, I want to be in the gym, I want right. to be working. It's not because the coach is telling me that I should be putting up extra shots. Exactly right. So that's, that's where it's changed for me. Where So now the question that I ask is not if they work hard or not. 
because I know you're going to do that because there's so many organized, use a football term, OTAs, organized team activities. Yeah. There's so many organized team activities that it kind of doesn't matter if you work hard or not, because if you're going to be on a team, you have to attend these things. They're mm-hmm. compulsory, right? So the question is, do you want to do it or not? And, and, um, and especially with, that's the approach that I take, especially I'm giving a little um, scouting game here, right? One of the things that I like to use on Twitter, and, I, and it's in my Instagram hand, handle, good game from a scout, right? Meaning I'm giving you some good game, right? So yeah. one of the things that I ask is, again, is especially with respect to bigs, right? I don't ask if big men, I was a point guard. I had to be married to basketball, right? Big guys and, and, and big players, and this is for the women's side and the men's side. They don't have to love the game like me because they're bigs. They're rare. So people will put up with the fact that they're not committed to the game like me, right? Mm-hmm. You, do they like it enough to want to be good at it? That's the yeah. question that I ask. Be- because right? if they're that big, a lot of the time in high school, they, they were always big. And so, you know, they, they could show up sometimes and just ball out because they're they're six inches taller than everybody else that, out that, there. That's exactly right. Wow. And so – you know, when you when you have a big that is married to the game and is passionate, you know, they already have that proverbial cheat code because they're athletic. They're bigger than everybody. Right. Yeah. But if they're married to the game like I am, then you have Kevin Garnett. Yeah. So so because and, and the reason why I reference him is because think about how many big guys we've seen over the course of the say the NBA. How many bigs play with that type of passion? Not many. Because they don't have to. Mm-hmm. They don't have to. But, you know, so people disparage a guy like Patrick Beverly. Um, when I was doing things on The Last Dance, I did a thing when we had the episodes about Isaiah Thomas. So mm-hmm. I was going on and doing a, a review of The Last Dance, Last Dance every Monday for every of when we would get those two episodes on a Sunday. I would do my review on a Monday. Mm-hmm. And. Um, so I so when we had the episodes episodes where they talked about Isaiah Thomas, I actually did a bonus one that following Tuesday because there was so much talk about Isaiah Thomas and Michael Jordan. Right. And, and one of the things that I talked about is and I'm saying this as a point guard. And, and Chris Paul is the modern day iteration of this. And people disparage Patrick Beverly, Isaiah Thomas, Chris Paul. Man, these guys are difficult to play with. And. What my premise was, was A, two things. One, Michael Jordan and Isaiah Thomas did not get along because they're much more alike than they are different, mm-hmm. right? So that They was, would love each other if they were teammates, but because they were butting heads all the time, it just ultimately created a divide. Yeah. Right. They're much more alike than they're different. And then the second thing, with respect to Isaiah Thomas, with respect to Chris Paul, um, who are Hall of Fame, great players. And then Patrick Beverly's in this category as well. Not a Hall of Fame, great player, but in this category. Uh, John Stockton is a Hall of Fame, great player that's in this category as well. People, when you are in a league, when, and this is why Isaiah Thomas is so great and he's actually very underrated. When you are in a league, and, and one of the things that I talk about that I'm really upset about I upset in a good way because it's a sign of respect. But when you're in the league, when you have a Kevin Durant who is seven feet tall that can do the same things that I can do at six one, and he's better at me <laughs> doing that, right? 
Yeah. It makes me upset because that's a sign of respect, right? I say that. What my expression is, I'm tight about Kevin Garrett, um, Kevin uh, Durant. I'm yeah. mad about him because <laughs> he is seven feet tall and does exactly what I can do and does it infinitely better than me. Yeah. So you are in a league where you have people like that. You have LeBron James, who is 6'9", and can do the things I can do and do it better than me. Kawhi Leonard, 6'8", six, 6'9", six, can do things I can do, do it better than me. Same with a guy like Paul George. Yeah. You have to do all sorts of other things in order to be a great, in order to overcome them, yeah. right? And so that lends itself to you, to people looking at you as an irritant. Mm-hmm. Does, that make, does that make sense? Oh, so, for sure. I, so, as much so as the Clippers drive me nuts, I mean, watching Patrick Beverly, like he embraces his role. He knows exactly what he is and, and he doesn't care what people think because ultimately he wants to stay in the league and he's fighting, he's fighting to be there. This is what I have to do. Yeah. Right. And, and, and if you look at Isaiah Thomas, again, this is what I have to do. This guy be Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. This guy be Magic Johnson. This guy be Larry Bird. Mm-hmm. And again, these are all time greats. He's matched. He beat Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson is a 6'9 point guard, right? <laughs> so in order to do that, this guy's 6'9 and plays the same position as me. Yeah. And he can play center and he plays the same position as me. So, yes, I have to do some things, right, that – that. so that's what I'm saying. Bigs don't have to be married to the game, at least – and this is how I evaluate it, right? Yeah. They don't have to be married to the game the way that I'm married to the game. So when you find a big that yeah. loves the game and is passionate about the game in that manner and they have the proverbial cheat code, right, they're almost fail-proof. Mm-hmm. because they love the game and since they love the game guess where that passion manifests itself in the extra work that they do outside of the things that I ask them to do right so the current iteration and I'm not saying he's on this level yet but a Jaron Jackson Jr right yeah. this is a guy that's a big guy he's athletic but he loves basketball yeah. so of course he's going to continue to ascend right because so he's, he's put in the work, he's going to add the tools yes. every year that he needs in order to be successful. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. That's so, so that's how I see the game. That's my again. This isn't you know scouting one on one. How everybody sees it. This is how I see it. Yeah, if that makes sense. Well, and that's amazing that you do see it that way. And I think the the experiences that you had over the years and, and all the different roles that you've had and and everything. I think it it translates into that, and that's why ultimately so many scouts can differ because they might have a different philosophy on the game and that's okay. And it's just, exactly. You know, it's just based off of them. So that's awesome. And I mean, wow, I learned a lot just even listening to that over the last little bit. So <laughs> I appreciate that. But again, I appreciate you for reaching out and having me on for your 50th episode. I'm chasing you, man. That's amazing. Thanks, man. I really <laughs> appreciate that. And you do great work. I've been watching your stuff too. So you do great work. I appreciate that a lot. It means, means a ton coming from you. Um, so obviously today we had breaking news. Um, that was Doc Rivers is now out as the Los Angeles Clippers head coach. What were your thoughts when you heard that news today? Um, you know, my thoughts were this is a very tough business. And, and um, it's a very tough business. And oftentimes you are 
ultimately held accountable for for things that you know are, I'm sure if you ask Doc, are there things that he could have done differently? Absolutely. That's how we all are. Yep. Because none of us are perfect. But at the same time, were the results that that uh that that sort of tripped up the Clippers were those results 100% on him? Absolutely not. Um, So, so with that being said, this is a very tough business. And, and so with it being a tough business um, and and Doc's not the first person uh, I've been in this situation with the Suns, and he won't be the last where you sort of set the foundation for a, um, for a team as it continues to ascend and then someone else comes in, you cook the dinner and someone else eats the dinner, right? That, that, you know, we, we've seen this a lot. We saw this, um, with, with, and we were referencing the last dance. Um, you know, there's a real argument as to whether or not the, the, the bulls would have won a title with Doug Collins as the coach who knows. Right. But, but Phil Jackson came in right as Michael and Scotty, and the rest of the the players on the team, uh, Craig Hodges, um, um, Bill Cartwright, et cetera, as those players were ready to win the championship, mm-hmm. right? So Phil came in. And did Phil have something to do with them winning the title? Absolutely he did. Yeah. And, you know, the same way when he went and, and, and assumed the reins from Dell Harris with the Lakers, the last time the Lakers were swept in the playoffs before Phil took over, um, the Lakers were the number one seed in the West. Yeah. <laughs> And they were swept, right? And, and that was before Phil showed up, mm-hmm. right? Um, I Mark think, Jackson- you know, uh, yeah, I was going to say a modern example would have been Mark Jackson and Steve Kerr because obviously, you know, we saw Golden State and the Clippers and, and they were in a really close series. And at the time, it was an unpopular decision when they let Mark go. And then suddenly, you know, Golden State becomes what they are today, even before Kevin Durant got there. And I think people forget all of the work that, that Mark put in in order to make them the team that they are. And, you know, Steve kind of reaps the benefits from it, you know, and obviously he has something to do with it, but yeah. No doubt. That, so, yeah. yeah. So, you know, so that's not, it's not, not unheard of, um, you know, and when you have a team with those types of uh, expectations, you know, there were some things that, Again, as I said, if you ask Doc if there's some things that he would have adjusted and done differently, absolutely. But, you know, there were also some things that happened to the Clippers that Doc didn't have anything to do with, right? Yeah. And, and, and um, you know, ultimately when you have those types of, types of expectations, um, you know, somebody has to pay the price. Um, you know, another example of this, and, and Nick Nurse is an is unbelievable mm-hmm. coach. He won the title last year, but a lot of the – yeah, when Incredible. you see a lot of yeah, when you see that the maturation of a of a Fred Van Vliet or of you know all of those things started under Dwayne Casey, you know, and, and um, so you know that that's that's not that's unfortunately how this business is. Uh, I'm sure Doc will land if if he wants to. Doc will land somewhere because he's a great basketball mind and and has been part of some incredible rebuilds and and. Uh, so again, unfortunate business for sure. Yeah, definitely. I don't think anyone's questioning Doc's ability as a coach. I think it's just it's it's a team with different expectations than a lot of others had this year, right? 
that they're in the select few of maybe five teams in the NBA where it's basically title or bust. And right. You know, unfortunately with those expectations and with all the roster turnover that they had to win right away, I think that was, that was obviously tough for him. And we know that he's going to end up somewhere and probably succeed there because he's just that good of a coach. But um, talking about the team that actually knocked them out of the playoffs, that's the Denver Nuggets. Um, we yeah. just did see the Western Conference final conclude a number of days ago. Uh, unfortunately for the Nuggets, it didn't end in, in a happy fashion. They ended up losing in five to LeBron and Anthony Davis. What impressed you the most about the Lakers in that series? Um, one of the things that, that really impressed me with the Lakers was how um, how focused they were. And, and mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're very focused, very focused, very um, uh, together as a group. And, and you know, I'll say this, and this is about the, the Nuggets and the Lakers as well. Um, this is one of my sort of unpopular uh, views, but nonetheless, it, it, it's a one of the things I like to say is there's a right answer, there's a wrong answer, and there's a real answer. And I like the real answers. Yeah. And, and you know, so one of the real answers is oftentimes you hear people say this, you know, there's no such things as, as moral victories. Right. And, and and but at the same time, you can't say there's no such thing as more victories. And then on the other side, say experience is the best teacher. Right. Mm-hmm. Because essentially, if experience is the best teacher, what you're telling me is that failure that I have through experience, there are more victories in my failure. Yeah. So case in point, a great example of this is what's one of the things that Dwight Howard has said throughout his second tenure with the Lakers? He said, I should have listened to Kobe more when and during my first tenure during the Lakers. Yeah. Right. So that first tenure was not a successful tenure for anybody. No. In terms of, the, you know, for the Lakers, for Dwight, it wasn't. But there are more victories, moral victories in that for Dwight. In that failure, he learned how to focus and what it takes to win a championship. Dwight Howard's demeanor. It's completely different. It's almost 180 degree opposite oh. of his first. It, it's amazing. It's not fun loving Dwight. Like you can tell that, that he's there to win a championship and it's, you know, I'll have fun when it's over, when we've accomplished the goal. And I think it's, it's a completely different mindset shift. I, I hadn't even really thought about that until you brought it up, but watching that game the other night, you know, uh, he got into it a little bit and you could tell like, before he would kind of laugh it off and it would just be, you know, ah, ha, ha, like whatever, like it happened. Yeah. But he yeah. was like, it's like, I'm here to win. I'm, th- that's exactly. what I'm here to do. And yeah, it's that, that group seems really locked in. Um, I see it on the defensive end too. Like it exactly. just seems like they've, they've turned a switch at some points in the playoffs. I remember the one game against Houston where in the fourth quarter, they couldn't get anything off. And it was just, they, they flipped that switch. And it's like the championship mentality that they have was incredible. So no, it's no question. And, and for them, especially LeBron, uh, particularly, um, I'll say this for their whole team. Those stops are important because the, the way that they score best is getting out of transition, yeah. right? Getting stops, turning you over, getting out of transition. Because it allows LeBron to get that 94 foot feet head start with the ball in his hands, right? Yeah. And, and when he has that, he's virtually unguardable, mm-hmm. right? 
And, and, and then it also, too, if you look on their wings, it allows their wing players to get easy looks because their wings that they rely on, um, with the exception of Kyle Kuzma to a certain extent, but their wings that they rely on, Danny Green, uh, KCP, aren't shot fabricators per se, yeah. right? They're more guys that are waiting for LeBron oh, or Rondo Peters. to kick it out, right? Or AD to kick it out to them so they can make shots. So they want to get in transition so they can get easy looks um, and, and get easier looks as opposed to always having to get looks when you're stacked up, when the defense is stacked up. And one of the other things about the Lakers as well, and people talk about playoff Rondo, yeah. right? One of the reasons why that works, and, and this is one of the things that, that um, I feel like is underrepresented, underrepresented when we have people talking about quote unquote playoff Rondo is the only way playoff Rondo works, especially when he's playing with LeBron, is when you have to account for Rondo as a facilitator, as a score. It can't be just as a facilitator. Yeah. It's got to be, he's got to be a scoring threat. And now him being a scoring threat and his role is not getting 25 points. It's but not it's getting 18 looks. Honest. It's, it's right. It's not right. allowing them to collapse, and then he's left wide open, not being able to hit a shot. You've seen it from other teams in the playoffs when they've got guys that can't hit that shot, and when you're playing four on five, it can be, it can be incredibly deflating for a team too. You can see that their their heads kind of drop, and absolutely, I mean, Rondo is a real thing. I mean, he absolutely he stepped up in a big way. In a way, I think a lot of people wish that Kuzma would have, but nonetheless, yeah. he's. He's been incredible, and, and I don't think that that's something that, that the Lakers could replace. Like, it's just... No, no not at all. In fact, if, if, if he wasn't operating as a facilitator and a scorer, you know who they would have to depend on? Deion Waiters. That's who <laughs> they'd have to depend on. Because if you look at their roster, the only person... And, and, and AC, so Caruso, is learning, but he's getting... He's a, this is the first time this dude's ever been yeah, in the playoffs, run. right? He's not yeah. a guy in a, in a do-or-die game that you want to be playing 30 minutes. Right, and you're, right? and you're dependent on him, right? Yeah. You know, so like this is – so you would be depending on him and Deion Waiters if Rondo wasn't playing in this role. Again, to your point, not only as a facilitator but as a scorer because, again, I'm, one of the things that I say from a scouting perspective, again, to your point about playing four and five, when we talk about ball stoppers, and I know this as a point guard playing myself, when, and when, when we talk about ball stoppers, people only think about ball stoppers in the role that, okay, your ball's moving, a guy gets the ball, and he wants to pat the air out of the ball looking for a shot for himself, right? That's how we think about ball stoppers. Well, there's another way a guy can be a ball stopper too. If you are fabricating offense for someone else, and I can say this as a point guard, if I'm breaking down the defense, right, yeah. defense collapses on me, a big now has to help because if he doesn't, I'm going to get all the way to the rim. So a big helps off of my teammate who's a big himself, right? And that little short corner 10-foot shot, 10 to 12 feet, if my teammate can't hit that shot, that's a ball stopper because that big collapses on me. I kick the ball out to that big. And then he throws it back out on the perimeter for us to try to get another shot. Yeah. That's a ball stopper. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, for sure it does. Right. 
And I mean, at that point, you probably shot clocks winding down. Now exactly. you're in a bad possession, and then it's just it's kind Absolutely. of a snowball effect. And if you're doing that over and over, it can it can turn into a, a quick run that ultimately loses you a game. So, so absolutely. Think- so when you have a, whether it's a big, whether that's a point guard, that is a guy that I just can't depend on offensively, then, and then it really, it really hinders you, especially when you get in the playoffs and you're playing against better dis- defensive teams that can plus up on you and just wait for you. <laughs> right. And, and, and it, it, it's, it's, it's very difficult to run, offense and get quality looks when you have someone on the floor that's like that and so back to you said one thing about Kuzma um so with him and and this is one of my uh thoughts too um (laughs) lots of times you hear people say hey why if if they're an eight seed and they let's take Atlanta for example yeah right say Atlanta was was able to be an eight seed when you have a young John Collins that's almost giving you 20 and 10 and yeah. then you've got Trey Young that's giving you like 30 and 11, mm-hmm. right? Um, so Joe Q. Public oftentimes says, man, why do you guys want to go to the playoffs and be an eight seed and play like Milwaukee and lose in four, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to let's not do that and get another lottery pick, yeah. right? And it, it's so important that even if they go and lose in four, it's so important for young players to get playoff experience early. Yeah, definitely. Because once they get to the midpoint, to the midpoint, to the beginning and the midpoint of their prime, if they have gotten that playoff experience early, then once they get to the midpoint, to the beginning and midpoint of their primes, respective primes, now they're able to play quality big time playoff basketball because they took their lumps in the beginning of their career. Case in point, right? So you, you look at Kyle Kuzma. This is, he is in the NBA Finals for the first time in his career. This is the first time he's ever been in the playoffs. I think people forget that, yeah. Like, right. It's so, he the, really so people. That. He really could right. have been one series of right. games. Yeah. Right. So now people are looking, man, where's Kyle Kuzma? This dude is trying to figure out how to play in the playoffs, right? When it slows and, and, down, and, the defense is tougher. Right, you're just right. adjustments. You're going Absolutely. games against the same opponent. They know what you are what you like to do, where you like to shoot from, and, and now he's trying to figure out, okay, how can I get mine Well, when they know what's coming? Exactly right. So you want these young players to get another example. People were saying, and granted, I don't think he's 100%, but throughout the Celtics run before they were eliminated, people were saying, man, you know, where's Kimball Walker during some of the games? People were saying that. Well, Kimball Walker is, one, I don't think he was 100% healthy, right? And he has some good moments for sure. But the other thing is Kimball Walker is in his, he's in his ninth season. He's in his ninth year in the NBA, his 10th season. And this is the first time he's been past the first round in the playoffs. Yeah. Right? And before so, he was getting, you know, first round and outed, like, against teams that right. are beyond what his team was capable of. Yeah. Exactly. So and you juxtapose that with the guy like, let's take OG Ananobi. During his rookie season, 
when LeBron was still in Cleveland, LeBron's last year in Cleveland, right? OG Ananobi was sometimes guarding LeBron James on an island. Yeah. Right? Talk about learning. (laughs) Right, right. So now look at his contributions now because, again, moral victories, right? He's saying, yeah, LeBron got the best of me, but with me guarding LeBron James in the playoffs on an island sometimes, there isn't anything in the NBA that I haven't seen at this point. Yeah, right? and you're not scared of the moment at that That's point. Exact, exactly you're right. not, That's exactly right. You're not taking right. on the greatest player of our generation in a one-on-one, then what are you worried necessarily? Obviously, you'll be worried about like a Jason Tatum, but you know, you've you've seen it all at that point. So you've seen it all at that point. And and case in point, and I'll say this, the epitome of that example. Ask Kawhi Leonard what that did for him when he was with the Spurs guarding LeBron on an island when LeBron was in his prime in Miami. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, you, you can't, you can't get that anywhere else. Exactly. At that moment. So, so, yeah. you, so that experience is, is you want these young players to get the, because again, the other thing, and I'll say this really quick, the other thing about experience, if you're a Trey Young, for example, Right. Trey Young is an all-star. Trey Young is tearing up the league, yeah. right? These guys are uber competitive. If I say, Trey, you know what? The playoffs are different, are different, man. You know, because he's uber competitive and because nobody can stop him, he may look and say, dude, I'm averaging 30 and 11. Mm-hmm. How different can it be until yeah. you get there? Until you and, get there. Yeah, and, and so Isaiah Thomas, again, going back to him as a great One of the things that he did when I really started understanding basketball, he did this in the mid-90s when one of the things that Isaiah Thomas is underrated in, Isaiah Thomas is underrated as a a talent evaluator. He was an amazing talent evaluator. When you look at – he drafted Tracy McGrady. Yeah. Right? And and, And I say that for a reason. Tracy McGrady was not a slam dunk. No. Right? Now, he turned – you know, he developed and became this – great player, Hall of Fame player, you know, he became that. But when he was on the board, it wasn't a slam dunk that Tracy McGrady was going to be this transcendent player. It wasn't a slam dunk, right? So Isaiah Thomas is an amazing talent evaluator. And I say that for a reason, and I'm referencing him about experience. Because in the early 90s, after he, at mid-90s, after he drafted um, Damon Stoudemire, who was rookie of the year yep. when he drafted him after he drafted Damon and after he drafted Marcus Camby, he took them to the NBA finals. Yeah. Right. And sat them courtside because that's his way of saying, I know you guys are tearing up the league, but this thing is different mm-hmm. and you need to see this. Right. Yeah. So, so you want these young players as much as they can, you want them to get that that experience early, as early as they possibly can. Yeah, it, it can completely change a player's career just based off of off of being able to play in those big games early in their career. And I think down the road, you see you can see some of the guys who have that experience and the impact right. they have. It's it's amazing. I mean. And then we had the Eastern Conference Finals, which <laughs> you know we we had a six game series there. Obviously, Miami ended up winning that series. Bam Adebayo was incredible in that close. Incredible. 32-14. and 14. I mean, what do you think the biggest reason was for Miami winning that series? Um, one, to your point, um, connectivity, 
right? And and we we talked about this earlier. If you really want to see how connected a team is, don't really watch them on the offensive end per se. Yeah, because you know, it, it, it's if you're talented enough offensively, you can overcome a lot of things, right? You can you better offense can sometimes be good defense. Yeah, right. But if you really want to see how connected a team is, watch them defensively, and. And, and, and people talk about zone defenses again, and they're like, man, like, you know, people put down zone defenses. And, but the reality is for zone defense to be effective, you have to understand and master man defense principles, mm-hmm. which means that you have to be connected. And that's if you really want to see how connected the team is, watch them defensively. Yeah. Watch them help. Watch them rotate. Watch them play, play man, then recover all of the help and recover, all of those things. And um, and Miami is so connected defensively. And then the second thing from a scouting standpoint that they are good at is, again, another scouting tenant for me. (laughs) Um, People oftentimes look at, you know, these players that are high-character guys, have a high level of toughness, play hard. Yeah. Game, right? Those are four things when those guys develop, every other team in the NBA is looking at those types of guys and saying to their scouts, charging their scouts with, hey, I need you to find these types of guys for me. But oftentimes in the NBA, when you have those types of guys, guess what those types of guys don't do a lot of? They're not flying above the rim, right? No. Those guys need some time to develop. Mm -hmm. And a lot of organizations present those guys to them they say well hey this guy isn't a sexy pick he's not flying above the rim he's not you know cat quick where he's a one-man press break press break right so these are the types of guys that allow their coaches they say people say dependability is the best ability and availability is the best ability well you can't be dependable and you can't be uh, available if you don't have a level of accountability You have to allow your coaches to hold you accountable. You have to hold yourself accountable, right? And those guys manifest themselves in the forms oftentimes of a Fred Van Vliet, oftentimes in the form of a Duncan Robinson, right? Um, Oftentimes in the form of a Jay Crowder, oftentimes in the form of a Jimmy Butler, right? And when you present an organization that they say, man, what position does Jay Crowder play, right? Yeah. Is he big enough to be a four? Does he shoot it well enough to be and handle it well enough to be, be a three? Well, you just told me you want guys that love the game, guys that are tough, guys that have high character, and guys that will work hard. Mm-hmm. I'm presenting them to you, right? Yeah. And, and teams oftentimes value those guys. They don't want to put in the R&D for a guy like that, but they want to reap the rewards from a guy like that. Yeah. Right? And, and, and guys like that get better because they love the game and they allow their coaches to coach them. Yeah. Like, right? Like, I watched a lot of uh, a lot of Heat stuff this year. I mean, listening to J.J. Redick, he did some interviews with Duncan and Jimmy and, and listening to their mentality of their team. And, and, you know, all I've been hearing all year is we've got a bunch of dogs on our team. We've got guys with chips on their shoulders, guys that want to win, guys that bought in. And I think you're you're seeing that ultimately culminate in the run that they're having because like as you said they're locked in defensively like 
you, you can tell I, I noted it in the in the Milwaukee series every time Giannis got the board he was looking to push it and they almost created a wall in front of him and said it's, That's it's exactly not gonna right today we're going to make sure, and you could tell that a lot of that's coaching and a lot of that's them being locked into the game plan of we're not going to let this happen. And, you know, that's why they are ultimately able to knock off Milwaukee. They they didn't let them get out in transition. And watching them against Boston, I mean, yeah, it just seemed like they were playing for each other. They were they bought into the system. And, I mean, a, a lot of people talk about heat culture, but I think it's you're really seeing it in this playoff run of, of – a lot of people wrote them off because maybe Jimmy Butler couldn't be the number one guy. But, I mean, when you've got six or seven, eight, ten guys that are that are bought in, I mean, it's, it's incredible to watch right now. No, it's great. And what Jimmy Butler did as well is he picked, not only did he pick a coach that, that resonates and works best with his style, he picked an organization yeah. that works best and resonates with his style. And, and the, it's hard work. That's what they do. That's what they, and again, they are all, and people, whether it's the players that are currently on their team, whether it's Hassan Whiteside, you know, people look and they're like, man, like how can they continue to develop these players? It is because again, they don't just say to their scouts and their talent evaluators, hey, find these types of guys. They actually find those types of guys, draft them or sign them, and they allow their coach the opportunity to coach these types of guys up. Because again, Duncan Robinson didn't walk in the NBA doing the things he's doing now, Definitely. right? Right, and, and White Hassan Whiteside didn't walk into the NBA doing the things that he's doing now, right? He didn't walk in the NBA doing that. And and it's it, go ahead, yeah. And and I think a great example of it too is Tyler Hero. I mean, I heard an interview that they were doing with him, and they talked about the fact that day one at camp, it was look, I don't give a crap what pick you are where you come from or any of that stuff. They threw him in the fire right away, like your garden, Jimmy Butler, first day of camp. And I mean, you see it translate into a 37 point outing in the Eastern conference finals from a rookie player. And I think a big reason why is because they don't baby their players. They don't let them, you know, they're basically saying, look, you're going to learn to win. Now you're going to learn our system. And if you're not going to, then I don't care how good you are. We're, we're here to, to run our system. Yeah, you can find somewhere else to play. Yeah. And, and, and what that does is, again, and I, I say this, and this is about situations again. If, you know, you see this to make a football reference, this is the philosophy. That's, that's part of the big reason. Sure, you had Tom Brady, but that's yeah. part of the big reason why Bill Belichick has been successful because those are the tenants that he runs his organization by and the owner allows him to run the organization by those tenants and, and doesn't say, Hey, you know what? I know that this guy, you better check. I know that this guy may not be the toughest. This guy may not want to work hard, but because he's flying through flying above the rim, you better draft him anyway. Right. And it's like, no, that's not what we do here. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so so the organization alliance, so when, you, when you're like that, and you think about this, right, the Heat have sort of, uh, there's been a resurgence and they're back into prominence. When you run your organization like this, you're not going to be good every year more than likely, no. right? Because those tough guys that have great character, that love the game and work hard, they're going to need some time to develop, mm -hmm. right? And, and once they develop, and then you add a Jimmy Butler to it. Now you're playing with house money. And then the other thing about them as well is 
it is so much easier to run your offense and be effective as a team when you can um, effectively invert your offense and run your offense through your five. Yeah. Right? It, it, that is such a major luxury because most bigs, when you're running your offense through your five, most bigs, most, and, and with, in the case of Bam, you got to match him with almost a traditional center who doesn't want to be out there because Bam is 6'11", mm-hmm. right? So most big centers don't want to be out there on the perimeter, so they're going to have to space him to guard him, right? Yeah. Well, he can shoot. And then the other thing is, and, and you know this, when you have a guy that has a high basketball IQ that, that, that can also handle the ball, you almost don't want to give him all of that space because it's going to pick you apart. Oh, his right? passing ability is is so incredible to watch and, and yeah. them running their offense through him. I mean, sometimes it's like poetry in motion. Like it's just he catches the ball at, at the top of the key and he's distributing it almost like a quarterback picking a defense apart. Like just Exactly, just because if the pass. big gets on him, if he gets too close to him, he's got enough ball skills to just drive right past him, yeah. right? And then – so that's a traditional big. And because most traditional bigs can't move the way he can move, right? Mm-hmm. And, then, and then secondly, secondly, the other thing is when um, – if you guard him with someone smaller than him that's more agile, he's just going to buffalo him and just beat him all the time, right? And so that was the dilemma that the Celtics had because – they didn't really have a traditional center, so they're going with smaller guys on them. And then with experience, the only guy that probably could have matched Bam from an athletic standpoint and size standpoint is Robert Williams. Not experienced enough. Yeah. Right? You um, can throw him in and play him heavy minutes. Like, he might be able to do it for a bit, but just another guy that could have used that experience of, of a bit more time in the playoffs in order to do so. No, no question. And so – that's ultimately, to me, one of the big reasons why the Heat won. Not because, not just because of Bam's contributions, but one of the things that I talked about when I was talking about this series on other platforms is this is not a question of whether or not Bam Adebayo is better than the Celtics' combination of bigs. You know, Robert Williams, uh, uh, Ennis Cantor, Grant Williams, and, and, and Daniel Tice. It's not whether he's better than them or not. But if you notice the games that the Celtics won in that series, in addition to Jason Tatum playing well and getting to the free throw line, yeah. right? Because if you want to be one of those top five players, you got to find, and your perimeter base, you got to get to the free throw line, yeah. right? In addition to that, the games that the Celtics won, it's not that Bam, whether Bam is better than all four of the guys at the Celtics, because he's better than all of them combined. But the discrepancy couldn't be so massive between the Celtics, you know, quartet of bigs and Bam. Mm-hmm. And if you look at, again, as you referenced, 32 and 14, look, look at that. And you look at what the Celtics got from their bigs. Yeah. Therein lies the story. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Especially whether, whether Bam is having big scoring numbers or whether he's having – points 10 rebounds and eight or nine assists you know the Celtics group of guys can't come with seven points combined eight or nine rebounds combined does that make sense oh it does for sure I mean because 
their their big carousel, you could say. I mean, they're not going to be able to match his output. And I mean, when, when you're trailing that much in that category, and then you factor in like a Tyler Hero game where he gets 37 or a Duncan Robinson's hitting five threes, Jimmy's giving you 20, Dragic is giving you 20. Like, it's just you're overmatched and, and that one position can can ultimately uh can ultimately be your downfall but yeah i mean we we broke down both of those teams really well and i think the best way to cap off the episode would probably be to to talk about that finals and ultimately give our predictions as to uh as to who's going to take it home so obviously i see the kobe jersey in the background (laughs) uh i too am a lakers i grew up in in california so (laughs) took a lot for me not to wear the lakers hat as well because i was thinking about it but uh but if you had to give your prediction as to who's going to be the nba champion in a couple weeks here who would it be and why and you know what if you don't mind can i ask you yeah, I've been waxing poetically. I want to hear your thoughts. <laughs> so, so ultimately, I, I was I was looking at this series on paper. Um, I think the the two best players in the series will, will be playing it for Los Angeles, um, but the next four or five are probably playing for Miami, and right. that's why for me it's such a toss up because I, as much as I believe in LeBron and Anthony Davis. And and I've loved what I've seen from Rondo. Obviously, we talked about playoff Rondo. He's he's been incredible this postseason. Um, Danny Green needs to obviously make some more shots. Um, finals Danny Green is also a thing. We've seen it over right. the years. Right. So I could right. see him improving. Um, I picked the Lakers in six to win this series. A lot of predictions I've seen online, you know, five games. I don't see that with Miami because what they've shown me in the postseason is even when they aren't necessarily on, they're going to work and they're going to make you earn every single win. And I'm still going to pick the Lakers because I think they have more star power. But Miami is going to give them a great series. I think we're in for some great basketball between these two teams. Really contrasting styles. And uh, I think if there's one coach that could figure out LeBron, it's probably the one that coached him and won a couple titles with him. So, right. <laughs> definitely. But so now what would be your your analysis of the series? Well, one of the things that, that, that you sort of teed up for me, which is great, the subplots here, right? So you got LeBron against his former team, Eric Spolstra against LeBron. And then you have um, – and then with LeBron against his former team, I don't think the, the relationship, maybe it's a little bit better, but I don't know if the relationship is all the way mended between LeBron and Pat Riley. No. Right? So, so you have that. And then you have Pat Riley against the organization where he won his first rings at as a coach. So mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the plot really thickens here when you watch these two teams play. This is, it, it, it's going to be amazing um, to watch. I, I, I agree with you. It's going to be great basketball. Um, if I had to choose, I, I choose the Lakers in six. And um, I say that because, um, you know, and, and I'll say this, when I was a scout and, and not only are you competing against the Lakers because we're all in the NBA, but, you know, for me, it was uh, different from growing up in California and the fact that the Lakers and the Suns are in the same division. And, you know, going back to my days at the Red Sox, um, it's amazing how quickly that you can when you are 
when your livelihood is, is, is based or tied to one organization, it's amazing how quickly those allegiances go out of the window, right? Yeah. You, all those things that, you know, liking the Lakers and things of that nature, like I didn't even think about that when I worked for the Suns, right? Yeah, exactly. um, it, 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 it's amazing. It just goes right out of the window. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so I was born in St. Louis. As, as born in St. Louis, grew up in California. So when we won the World Series in 2004, when I was with the Red Sox, we were actually playing the St. Louis Cardinals. And I didn't think about that until <laughs> yeah. after we won game four in St. Louis, where I'm standing at home plate in the old Bush Stadium. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy. But games one, two, three, and four, I was just thinking about a ring. Right? Exactly. Um, yeah. um, so I say that because um, so now being on this side, of course, your allegiance has come back a little bit. And um, um, so I want the Lakers to win. Um, it, it wouldn't surprise me if this is a long grind out. Could it go seven? It could. It absolutely could. Um, and and um, do I think the Lakers will win? I do think they'll win. But I also agree with you on what you said. Like the Lakers have the best two players. But then after that, it's, it's you know, it, it, and that's another reason why, to your point, Rondo is so critical because, you know, the other players for the Lakers, now one of the things that really helped them throughout their run is KCP has been really good. Yeah. And, and, nice. and I didn't expect that because in the bubble, when, when we first had to play in the seeding games, he wasn't playing so well. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so, so now you're, you're looking at them and those guys have to show up The play playoff. Danny green has to show up. Yeah. Um, now, the Lakers bigs, the bigs. And, and one of the things that I said um, as we got to the final four of this playoffs, three of the four teams that were in the final four, Eastern Conference Finals, Western Conference Finals, three of the four teams, when you remove the Golden State Warriors from the equation, and I'm talking about the Kevin Durant Golden State Warriors, right? And the reason, and even with them, because they were so strong on the perimeter. But even with them, what really made them dominant when KD came is the, the sort of undervalued aspects that made them dominant. It's KD gave them somebody that could score at the rim, and he also gave them somebody that could protect the rim. Yeah. So now with Steph and KD, you have point guard play, and you got a big, mm-hmm. right? So even though it's all threes and all that stuff is great, you still got a point and you got a big, right? And so now when you look at the four, the two teams that are remaining, but the four, three of the four teams that were in the playoffs that were remaining, and that goes back to my point about the Celtics, even when they won games in the, in the Eastern conference finals, like in game, um, in game five, Daniel Tice had 15 and 11. Kimba yeah. Walker also had a strong game. Point guards and bigs. Yeah. So, Denver, Jamal Murray, Monte Morris, Jokic. Yeah. Right? Lakers, LeBron, Rondo, Dwight Howard. Yeah. And then Miami, sure Jimmy Butler, sure Tyler Hero. Goran Dragic, Bam Adebayo. Yeah. So now we're back to old school, and I don't think the old school element of points and bigs never left. Yeah. Right. It's just when Golden State came with 
Kevin Durant came, people undervalued his play as a big, big scoring, getting into the paint, whether that's off the dribble or not, getting to the paint, getting easy buckets at the rim, because he was the one guy that did that, blocking shots. He yeah. protected the rim for them. So um, this is old school basketball in, 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 the new, in a new package, right? <laughs> and, and, and so um, playoff Rondo continues to be a threat offensively as well. I think that's what puts the Lakers over the top. For sure. I would agree with that. I think we know that, that LeBron and Anthony Davis have shown that they're going to, they're going to produce. The question is, where's the other production going to come from? It, will it be Rondo? Will it be Kuzma? Will KCP continue to? Will Danny Green hit some shots when they need him? I think it's going to be a great series for sure. Yeah. I, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a great cap off to what's been a pretty crazy uh, NBA season as a whole. No, it, it's been crazy. Yeah, it, it, and that and the the bubble leads itself to that because you know when we first got started, when we were first talking about getting started, one of the things that when people would have me on, I would ask, they would ask me, I would say, this lead lends itself to some crazy things happening because, and the last time we really saw this is the '99 lockout shortened season when the Spurs and Tim Duncan won his first title against an eight seed in the New York Knicks, yeah. right? The only eight seed to make the finals. Yeah. That's the, that's, you know, the, the lockout shortened season, it, it lent itself to some crazy things happening. And here we are right now seeing this. Yeah, the Lakers are the constant, but Miami in the finals is the crazy. And Denver making the Eastern, the Western Conference finals. That's the crazy. I think a lot of people were looking at an all LA and then probably a Milwaukee or I was. in Boston or Toronto. I know that I predicted uh, some of those teams at the start of the year, even mid year and yeah. heading to the bubble. It's, it's been a crazy NBA season and, and it's going to cap off really well. But I, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. It was oh, an incredible episode, you. a great discussion. Um, before I let you go, why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find you? They can find me on Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter, the whole nine at a.williamsbasketball. And it's nothing creative with my spelling. I, I didn't get the shooter's pod like you did. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do anything creative, and I should have. I was just panicking. Let me find a name really quick. Um, so it's a.williamsbasketball, the way that it sounds. That's where they can find me, all sorts of different um, analysis there. And, and one of the big things I like to say is, one of the, we talked about the pandemic and the quarantine. One of the things that 2020 has taught me is give people their flowers while they are amongst us, right? So I've been trying to be very more, uh, be more diligent and be more mindful about recognizing the people that laid the groundwork for this and basketball, football, all of these different sports that we like. And uh, so I just posted about the great Shamiqua host call today. Um, and, and before that, it was Cheryl Miller, Randall Cunningham, uh, lots of different players that I've posted, and uh, I'm going to continue that. So, folks, give people their flowers while they're with us. Definitely. That's a great message and a great way to cap off this episode. So thank you once again for coming on the show. It was a fantastic 50th episode, and uh, we'll see you guys. This is my season finale. Be taking a couple weeks off before heading into season two. So uh, thank you once again for coming on the show. Well, I hope you, I know you're taking a couple of weeks off, but I got to have you all. Sounds good. <laughs> I'll return that favor for sure. It's Hayward pulling it down, getting around Zubat. 
at midcourt, launches the shot, oh, and almost went in! Almost went in, and Duke is the king of the dance! It's time for the Shooter Shoot Basketball Podcast with your favorite Canadian, Kenneth Cotterman. 